But I don't know why you would go after someone's professional license unless they were professionally incompetent. Don't start pointing fingers in the medical record. That's not a, an appropriate thing to do. The medical record should be facts only. You either grovel and take responsibility, but you can't half do it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's Rick and Greg again, Risk Management Monthly. This is for June 2019, and as they said in Carousel, June is busting out all over. Here in Michigan, uh, it was 47 degrees this morning, but it's going to climb to a magnificent 70 degrees today, Rick. You in California, you don't even understand those temperatures, so I'm I, I'm not going to waste a lot of time with it. There's some place uh, on the thermometer, but we 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 don't go there very often. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, you don't go there very much, um, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just uh, uh, apologize a little bit. I've I've gone through uh, some uh, minor medical problems. If I sound a little weak, a little strange, not as good as usual, uh, about uh, four weeks ago, I was in the hospital, and who shows up to see me all the way in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but Rick Bucata. Rick, it was, uh, I can't tell you what it meant to me to have my friends show up when I was in bad shape. Well, listen, I expect the same from you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, not only did Rick show up, but they brought my kids home. They really thought I was bad. We were at the deathbed there. <laughs> yeah. You know. The funny thing is, my kids, of course, are all disappointed. I lived. In fact, not only did I live, but uh, you know, I haven't left them a damn dime. So they're just uh, they're just out. They thought they were going to be living in luxury, you know, like the Bucata children. And no, no, they got to they got to make it like everybody else. So uh, thanks for showing up, Rick, to my friends who had one of my my other friends who's a priest come in and uh, uh, talk and pretend like he was giving me last rites. Uh, it is one of the best gotchas <laughs> I've ever seen. And I appreciate it very much. But. Uh, enough of all that sort of uh, wimpy crap. I, I'm back. I'm functioning, uh, and uh, nobody's uh, nobody's allowed to take my place. So here we go, Rick. Yeah, let's do a, a a story here. This is a reflection of the age of the doctor. Uh, this fellow writes this is an email. So the uh, issue focuses on the request of an insurance company to have an 80-year-old who had multiple comorbidities, uh, but the primary problem was pneumonia, to be transferred from an out-of-network hospital to an in-network hospital when the patient was stable. The patient did arrive somewhat hypoxic, but improved on oxygen, mildly tachypneic, the... uh, Antibiotics were started in the emergency department, and ultimately the caseworker got the okay to admit the patient to the other hospital. Mm-hmm. The question from our writer, who is a recent grad, uh, 
his hospital had all the necessary facilities to take care of this person's problem. Have you ever heard, Gregory, of a person being shipped from one hospital to another just because of uh, they were out of network? And yep. uh, that's question number one, and that's that reflects that this pure, poor doctor was not around at the heyday of the HMO world where, in fact, patients were being ambulanced back and forth all the time. And the key element here is he asked, are there Amtala slash medical uh, legal implications? And my view of it was, no, there are no Amtala uh, issues here. The patient is stable. And if, in fact, the patient is stable on retrospective review of the case, then Amtala is over. The patient's been stabilized. And so... This is a transfer for money reasons, and we did them all the time. Yeah, I think that uh, the worst thing we can get into here is a smugness, this sort of sense of, oh, uh, we would never do anything like that. That's crap. Uh, One thing that we do all the time is take into account the entire picture of this patient's finances. Here in Ann Arbor, we have a VA hospital. If I see someone at one of the private hospitals or at the university hospital, I can get them transferred to the VA, which is maybe 12 minutes away or 15 minutes away. If that patient's bill is covered by the VA, why not do what we can to help out this family? The last thing you want to see, if if dad is covered by the VA, is a $40,000 bill. And by the way, uh, having just gotten out of the hospital, let me tell you, those kinds of numbers are not unusual, Rick. This is, th- these are big numbers. Uh, I fortunately was covered by insurance. But there are going to be plenty of people who are not. If the transfer is reasonable, the patient is safe, and it's to the best interests of all parties involved, go ahead and transfer the patient. I would never transfer someone who is having an acute MI in front of me, had this problem or that problem. I would not do that. But... We transfer people uh, and have all the time for financial reasons, the network, that sort of thing. And I don't consider that um, unusual. In fact, if you don't transfer a perfectly stable patient and the family is stuck with those bills, shame on you. You know, uh, this fellow probably works in a or was taught in a university where or a big hospital where patients were transferred in he was uh did not have the experience of transferring patients out which is happening in the community hospital setting where he works so yes that is a routine matter uh hopefully it doesn't happen too often because it's like the person's physical you're right your hospital has everything necessary to take to care for this person and that yet they're going to put them in an ambulance and and take them down the street so that is kind of a little a little strange but uh that's unfortunately the way it goes right now 
Yeah, I, I think we have to understand we do not live in a pure system. This is not the British. This is not the Canadians. Uh, and finances do make a difference. So whenever you can take care of that aspect of it, I would do it as well. And by the way, uh, two days ago on the television, um, we had a patient transferred from the Dominican Republic to Massachusetts General, the baseball player for the Boston Red Sox, Big Poppy, who was shot in the back in the Dominican Republic, was operated there. The, uh, the baseball team arranged to have him put on a private jet and sent to the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. I mean, transfers do take place. And, you know, if I'd been shot in the Dominican Republic, I may want to be transferred back to the Massachusetts General Hospital. It's okay. Isn't that the country where all these people are dying from drinking out of the minibar? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think anybody has an answer to that yet, Rick. And we shouldn't be saying rude things. But uh, you're right. Uh, things are not always as they seem. And things here um, aren't as bad as people would have you believe. All right, let's take the next one. We're, we're talking about mailbag again here. And we have a discussion of the role of PAs and NPs in the ED. A PA listener responded to our comments in the April issue regarding PAs and NPs in the emergency department. He expressed some very thoughtful comments about the tenor and tone of the AAEM policy statement and noted the challenges of being a PA in a busy department. Uh, there are definitely tensions appearing that, uh, that people did not see initially and uh, advanced practice providers uh, are perceiving their places as being threatened. Uh, there are issues here and how the, how people function is going to be a, uh, is going to be based on how that particular department runs. There is no question that the AAEM policy statement looks after physicians. It's in defense of physicians. And, and I think that that's understandable that somebody wants to keep a pecking order as to who should be doing what sorts of things. Rick, is this unexpected? Well, you know, uh, maybe seven years ago, when we started the boot camp courses for the PAs and NPs to focus on emergency medicine, given the fact that they were starting to work in the emergency departments and really a lot of them had very little training in emergency medicine and it was it was the training by fire kind of thing which is a dangerous way to learn for sure but it, uh so at that time it was like god this is a wonderful thing that these people are working in the emergency department helping us out and now we're getting the right person for the job and all of that and it was apple pie and motherhood and now that this has matured a little bit uh, people are getting very concerned about who's being hired, whether emergency physicians are being replaced by uh, PAs or NPs, 
And frankly, whether emergency physicians, there's too many of them, and they're all going to be coming out looking for jobs in the primo locations, which is then going to drive down salaries because of increased competition between a, a glut of emergency physicians in, in the nicer places. And so it's really gotten very, everybody's kind of watching their back. I, I did mention this uh, commentary in one of the newspapers that basically said, absolutely, we're uh, training too many emergency physicians and we need to back off on that. So it's like, it's a very complex kind of matter going on here. Plus throw in the idea of autonomous practice and then you've got a real uh, can of worms. I think that uh, if you look at certain states, California being one, I think that autonomous practice, independent practice of PAs and NPs is is uh, within five years. I think that it's going to take place. I think that there's going to be very little. See, the problem with physicians is they made a mistake. They said, sure, I can supervise three, maybe four of these people. Maybe I only have to see a few of these people. As soon as you've done that, you've sent a message. And that message is very clear that there's another level of provider who may not be perfect, but but can do about 95% of the work. And once you've sent that message out, what's the rest of the world going to do? They're going to look for the 95% cost solution, or actually about a 70% cost solution to the problem. This is, um, and I hate to use my economics background here, but expensive money, gold, is driven out of existence by silver. Why? Because if the cheap stuff works, the expensive stuff disappears. I don't know why we would ever think that the laws of economics don't apply to healthcare. And if until you come up with some way of showing an inferiority, worse outcomes, greater lawsuits, none of which we can show, I think that th- that uh, paranoia, a little paranoia in the medical community is not a bad thing because I spoke and I, w- I will speak at, um, I don't know whether it's the 217th or 218th residency program in emergency medicine, Uh, It's a new program, and I've been invited as a visiting professor. But when you and I look at this, Rick, that's a lot of graduates. What exactly are they all going to do? And they all can't work in La Jolla. They all can't work in, in San Francisco. Somebody has got to go out and cover Keokuk, Iowa, And uh, if you don't like that, that's too bad. I think physicians got into the idea that if they go to out-of-the-way places and this and that, yeah, it's okay. We don't want to go there anyway. But that's not what's going to happen. And uh, as soon as you have big money putting these uh, programs together, 
they're going to opt for the least expensive solution that solves the problem. And I don't think we should expect that that's wrong. There are 23 states that are, um, and the District of Columbia and Guam, you'll be pleased to know, that allow uh, autonomous practice of nurse practitioners. Just recently in California, that was uh, beaten down. Uh, I think that actually they're right in the voting process of this thing now. Obviously, the uh, California Medical Association is vociferously against this, but... Um, it's it's 23 states and counting kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And what will happen is the data from those 23 states will be collected, will be pub published. And if we think anybody's going to back off um, in the other states from pursuing this, you're just wrong. It's it, it's going to happen. So next, Rick. Okay, so listen here, we have one relating to the reversal of the state's cap on non-economic damages. There are a bunch of states now that have, they used to have a cap on pain and suffering, which then got challenged and has subsequently been removed. California, fortunately, is not one of them. And California's cap has been the same for the last 20 years. It's $250,000 pain and suffering. And so we've talked about this before where, People are saying, hey, come on, you know, you got to adjust this for inflation. $250,000, you can, can, can bar barely buy a nice uh, 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 Lexus here or, or uh, some <laughs> other kind of car for, for crying out loud. Right. You barely get a Jeep for that, you know. So, but that hasn't happened uh, here. This is an article published in Medscape, you see that, May 17, 2019, involves an incident in which an infusion infiltrated. There were a number of issues. The patient was being treated for pancreatitis. He was diabetic. His peripheral IV infiltrated, and there was some he said, she said about who did what and the documentation about that, uh, this uh, incident. Bottom line was four days after the reversal of the of the Supreme Court of Georgia's, uh, it basically said the cap of $350,000 in Georgia is gone. And four days later, four days later, this trial went through and this guy got awarded $1.5 million for losing his thumb. Yeah. So uh, I guess, I guess, you know, I'm not so sure that losing your thumb is uh, non-economic damages. I mean, without a thumb, it might be a problem doing a bunch of things. But in any case, this story was about the coincidental reversal of this $350,000 cap in the state of Georgia and the fact that within days there was an award of $1.5 million dollars. Regarding this case of this infusion causing a uh, necrosis and ischemic process, uh, he, he this is about a, an expert who focuses on infusion-related injuries. There's an expert for everything, Greg. Yes, yes, this is, there is. This is a right lower extremity infusion expert. In uh, any case, he said, actually, nurses should carry their own malpractice insurance. Nurses should participate in and maintain proof of all ongoing training uh, and continuing education related to 
uh, infusions to document the whole picture, maintain professional board certification in the infusion society. Did you know there was such a thing? Keep up I didn't with it. know there was a specialty of infusion for nurses. Well, I thought I thought ev- almost all nurses started IVs and ran them. I, I had no idea there was a special section here, Rick. There's an infusion society. They basically said, keep up with the new evidence for practice, never make statements to family or patients admitting guilt, and be nice. Sometimes bad things happen that are not the result of malpractice. Uh, you know, this issue, Greg, came up um, when somebody I know had an IV started by uh, ultrasound. <laughs> Who was that, Rick? Well, yeah. you, I, I was standing there when you were being poked around by some well-intending nurse with, you know, trying to get blood from you, and you were all puffed up like a toad so they couldn't find any vascular system in you. And yeah. um, I said to them, I'm going to take credit for this, Greg. I said, do you ha- I, I did. Do you have a in this hospital a uh, nurses who do uh, ultrasound to uh, get blood, start IVs? And I think we talked about this last time. We may be getting redundant here. But, yes, you're a huge mega hospital that teaches all of these people. Had one person in the entire building, and she came to you, and she – started on IV and I watched it over her shoulder how she did it and um, it was the civilized way to do this Other prior, prior to that you were looking like a freaking pincushion you were oozing out of all of these orifices yeah by the way for all of you listening how would you like to have Greg Henry as your patient and Rick Bucata <laughs> leaning over somebody commenting on the care I mean you gotta remember Rick uh, the, the, this is a tough situation for them to be in a staff man at the hospital, a world famous guy making comments. I, I wouldn't want to be in their position. Honest to goodness. If I hadn't said something, they would still be trying, trying to start that IV (laughs) in you. They, they may have been. All right. We're going to move on now to talk a little more about apology And the fact that all these states came up with apology programs and apology laws. And if you said something like, oh, my God, I think I killed the patient. They're not allowed to mention that in a court uh, action. Well, you know, the, the cool thing I like about this thing is the title of this article. Doctor, don't expect a partial sorry to reduce liability. That's, but you see, that's true when you're talking with your wife. A partial, I'm sorry, never works. You either grovel or, or, and take responsibility, but you can't half do it. Because people view that, Rick, as self-serving. They really do. This is the, uh, this, this is the uh, persuasive litigator, uh, May... 13th, 2019, and it said apology laws have been on the books in 39 states. I think that's what we've reported here before. And there's a study in the Stanford Law Review in 2019 that tried to assess the effect of apology laws 
against surgeons and non-surgeons. I don't know why they divide the two. I mean, they're both physicians in an unspecified uh, specialty. And it, it, it was cardiology, wasn't it? Well, Greg? I thought it might be cardiology. What kind of specialty has surgeons and non-surgeons? Yes, right, exactly. After review, eight years worth of insurance company data, the authors solidly concluded the following things. Number one, and, and, and you realize it's hard for me to say these words because I come from one of those universities that believes in it. They believe, and we've had the head of that program on our show, Rick Boothman from the University of Michigan, who says it works. It, it, it cut their costs by 45%. This is what the Stanford Law Review says. Apology laws don't work. They don't think much of them. They said surgeons are not helped by the law. Non-surgeons in the same specialty um, are, are likely to pay and pay more as a result of apology law. So they've gone back and, and found people who were covered and not covered and said they're paying more money, not less money. Rick, what do you think about that? Well, they're, they're pretty adamant about it. Here's a quote. Overall, our findings indicate that on balance, apologies laws increase rather than limit medical uh, malpractice liability risk. They also said, even if patients cannot use the apology laws itself as evidence, the apology may alert patients to potential malpractice and encourage them to seek out other forms of admissible evidence. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we were, we were told this. We were spanked on this issue by Mike Frank. Uh, about four or five years ago, we had him on this program. And uh, he basically had, uh, let's say, cautious words for the apology laws. Um, I, I think if there's a take home here, uh, if you've got apology laws in your state, know how to use them, know how your risk managers uh, also uh, can be involved, but you cannot believe that it's 100%. And I think that's, you know, the best thing you can do, not screw up. Yeah, basically, uh, uh, they, they, they do acknowledge that there's another side to this coin, and they do use right. your, friend, your friend's program, which is now pretty mature. It, um, I think one of the issues was, well, how successful is it when litigation takes a long time to, you know, come to the fore? and uh, be settled. And so at your place, it's successful. He says, why are some programs successful? Oddly enough, because partial apologies are not full apologies. Uh, partial apologies express statements of condolence and sympathy, but only five states have full apology laws, protection against statements of fault, error, and liability. If, uh, now, unfortunately, this article did not list what those five states were, but we have in the past, and if you go back into the database and do a search, I'm quite sure you'll find what those five states are. But to tell you the truth, it's kind of like we've been told never say anything to the 
people that acknowledges any kind of culpability or how can you express condolences when you did something wrong there's a problem and you can't and the and the logical extension of your apology is i'm sorry that i you know that i did this come on now but in yeah, any case I, you guys rick, seem rick to be boothman, doing okay rick boothman has looked at this and i think he says the reason that the university of michigan has been successful in cutting it in half is they don't let everybody and his uncle do it they only have people trained who do this apologizing or handle these cases. They don't expect every intern uh, or every first-year resident uh, who's angry about the amount of time they work anyway rushing in and saying things to patients. And I think that's right. I think that if you're going to have a system it has to be a real system, <laughs> and you can't depend on the state law to bail you out if you say really dumb things to the patient. Well, you know, I think, and it's stated in this article, that the reason they believe apologies laws don't work are because what has been given out are not apologies. They're par partial apologies, and just like you said, a partial apology may be, may be worse than no apology at all. Yes, yeah, exactly. A, 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 a true apology acknowledges responsibility for the problem. You, you can't ign uh, ignore that part. It, it expresses remorse for the uh, situation. It talks about what we're going to do to repair the situation and reform our practices so that it doesn't happen again. That's what people want to hear. They want to hear all four of those things, and you can't do very well when you're doing a partial apology. I'm really sorry about the fact that uh, things are going badly when, in fact, it's obvious that you are the cause of those things going badly. Yes, yes, and and trying to combine them with something else is uh, is very difficult, and it, it, it never works our, out well, but— you know, our lawyers say, don't talk to anybody uh, once something bad, bad has happened. Clam up. Don't talk to anybody but your, your spouse. Or, uh, and, uh, it, and all of these rules and regulations about talking about it only in the setting of uh, a meeting where it's uh, acknowledged to be a risk management meeting or a, some kind of other hospital meeting which we believe is protected and which, in fact, in some states is not protected. So the bottom line is say nothing. And that's the advice that your lawyer wants to give. They're not yeah. into apology laws. They don't, that's not the way the court system works. The court system in our country is very adversarial. So um, I, I think that it would be great if we got him back on so that he could address some of these issues that, are, have come up. You know, I think that uh, getting Rick uh, to Rick uh, Boothman to come on is a possibility. I'll see what I can do about that. I mean, he lives. <laughs> eight, hey, listen, can you run down the, from my house? Can you run down the street and see if he's available right this minute? Yeah, you yeah. Know, I, I, I don't. I, don't I can't know if... do it now, but we will bring him on and and just say, "Hey, Rick, 
there's there there are people who view this differently. You know, All right, we've I don't, beaten that puppy. I don't know if he's still with the university because uh, I think they're he has an independent consulting company now, telling yes. telling other places how to do this. Yeah, well, then he certainly wants to come on and talk about how he can straighten you out on this issue. But go ahead, Rick. Uh, bring up the floor. Uh, discuss the Florida Board of Health. Well, this came out just recently. Um, the Florida the Florida Board of Health is suspending health care licenses if you are behind on your student loans. Uh, that was a, a story in ABC News. Um, in, back in February, actually, the Florida, the Florida State Board of Health indicated that about 900 health care workers were in danger of losing their clinical, their clinical license. Uh, they, they noted that occurred over the last two years. As many as 100 have actually lost their licenses over failure to pay their student loans since uh, November of 2016. Uh, apparently, 12 other states have this kind of thing on the book which is equivalent to debtor's prison um, because it takes away your ability to make money to pay your loans. Uh, uh, there have been no physicians involved in this, and Florida apparently is the only state that has actually uh, enforced this law. So it's yeah. kind of like it was brought up as a kind of a wacky kind of thing um, to do, it is kind I of think wacky. it makes no sense. What I would do is just attach their earnings. That's what lawyers are for uh, and go after them that way. But I think you're you're arguing two entirely separate issues. Do you owe money? Yeah, OK, we can deal with that. Uh, but we deal with that every day. Why would you tie it up with a licensure issue? which I think is a totally separate question, particularly if that then interferes with your future ability to get a license in, for example, another state. Let's say you're now moved to the state of Georgia or the state of Tennessee. Are they going to go after your license in those states too? I think they're two separate issues. Uh, there are reasons to take away people's licenses. I just think the money issue is is not a constructive issue. Let's just attach their earnings, find out where they're working, go after them where they get paid from Medicare and Medicaid and insurance companies. But I don't know why you would go after someone's professional license unless they were professionally incompetent. I think it's separate and, uh, you know, shame on Florida for confusing those issues. Well, yeah, that's why this made the news. It made the news because it is nutty. Yeah. Good, it, good job, <laughs> Florida. Know, yeah, good job, Florida. All right, next. <clears throat> We've got a gunshot wound victim waits too long in the ED for definitive care. Here's a jury award. I, Rick, I, I still can't believe I'm reading this right. Is that, say, $30 million? $30 million. In a malpractice action uh, against a, a um, hospital and a surgeon. 
Um, this this comes from an article in the Tuscaloosa News. Yeah, can you imagine where we're getting these stories, man? We're scanning the world for this stuff. <laughs> we look. Uh, May 16, 2019, a 24-year-old, um, and I think that's his real name, isn't it? Jeremy Sledge it. was shot in an altercation. Now, if he's like my place, he was either on his way to church or minding his own business, which are the most dangerous things you can do in, in at my hospital. That's probably what happened. Uh, and he was he was rushed to the ED. He died two hours later. The issue isn't that he died. The issue is the on-call surgeon was doing an elective operation at the time. Now, that surgeon's name appeared on the call list. He was supposed to be available. Uh, and and uh, this case has gone on for a long time. Uh, the surgeon and his practice group, the director of trauma services, uh, all these people were named in this action. And it, it wasn't simple. And basically, the attorneys basically said this, your hospital holds itself out to do emergency care. This guy should have been available in a reasonable time to participate in emergency care. He was not available to participate. Ergo, he was earning other money doing a private case. Who's to blame here, Rick? Talk about what, what went wrong. Well, yes, the surgeon was doing an elective case. The uh, ER called down to the surgeon, and the surgeon said, call someone else. The ER could not find uh, another surgeon, and the operating surgeon uh, was called again, and they said, fi- he said, find a different surgeon. And then on the third call to the operating surgeon, the surgeon said, transfer him to the uh, local university hospital. Well, all the time, this guy's bleeding out in the emergency department. And uh, it brings up an issue that I think is um, very, very, very common. It's like uh, at our hospital, if a surgeon was on call, they, uh, they were allowed to do elective surgery. And there wasn't a really st- strong policy about that surgeon having designated an alternative surgeon during that period of time. Um, Because these surgeons are not going to be standing by at community hospitals uh, waiting for some uh, problem to come in and not having the opportunity to uh, make money. Uh, Now, you've worked at some community hospitals where the on-call surgeons at the community hospitals were they allowed to do elective surgery or not? No, they they were. Um, they knew that they were on call, and they were frequently in the OR doing other kinds of cases. Uh, and they what they were supposed to do was have someone if they went to the operating room have somebody who could cover them, a partner or another member of the group. But the bottom line here, I think, is pretty straightforward. They shouldn't be taking patients to hospitals 
where they can't get the care they need. If, after all, this surgeon said, transfer the patient to the university hospital, why did they take him to this private hospital if they knew or should have known that the care wasn't available? Well, they didn't. And so one of the issues here is the hospital and all of these other people were named in these suits because they didn't have policies that would have covered the situation and and because there weren't policies for getting a backup surgeon and making it known to the ER all of these kinds of things which are obvious you know very obvious the whole hospital and everybody else got sued not just the surgeon involved because um, it was a system problem so 20 million 30 oh, 30, 30 million 30, inflation yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, I, I'm sure that's uh, I'm sure that's the problem. But uh, when you think about this, um, you know, I, I'm as doctor uh, as they come, pro doctor as they come. But the public actually has a right to be a little bit upset here. This is a 24 year old who almost always in a traumatic situation. Uh, may have stood a chance of survival with with uh, an appropriate operation. Now, that isn't the issue in this case is his survivability, but it's the availability of the care. And I would only point out to our listeners, if you've got that kind of situation, just understand there's now a case, a reference case that they can go to put on the table at your hospital if there is an untoward delay in getting someone in to to handle the surgery. No one's expecting that the surgeon sits in the department. No one's expecting that in 15 minutes he may be able to get in there. But this is this is two hours. And if you're going to be in that business, um, well, it costs you thirty million dollars. Yeah, it's about fifteen million an hour is what this is. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it it's not pleasant. It's well, you know, just not good. I think that this is very common. Yep, very common in community hospitals, smaller community hospitals, hospitals where I worked. It it was it was the rule that these surgeons were not prohibited from doing surgery when they were on call, and. Um, Unless you have a really clear policy on how that's handled, uh, you might be facing the same kind of problem. Yep, it 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 it, it can happen. All right, let's do another uh, letter that someone has written in, and basically they they raise a question which we've dealt with a few times on this program, and that is, and they and they they open up nicely, gentlemen. Now, it's nice for you and I to be called gentlemen because we've been likened to the two old guys in the box on the Muppet show, you know, and and uh, to be called gentlemen is a good thing. What they say is they want to talk about placing the late entry in the ED chart in an emergency medicine record. Um uh, they like our program. They found that most of it has been useful. I'm glad that they found most of it's been useful. 
but they want some background here because they're in, they've been involved in a situation where they've got to go back and correct and put something else in the record. Rick, you want to and and this person is a PA, not a physician. Does it carry different weight? What else should be added? How do we do this, Rick? Well, we time and date the uh, the um, addendum. We then basically write a very self-serving note. Yes. Because <laughs> that's exactly how it's going to be viewed. This history and physical that you are going to do after the fact is going to be the world's most incredible history and physical, especially when you know something bad has happened. Um, so, yes, you can. you have to do it. You have to do it, but obviously this is going to be looked at with great skepticism by um, anybody else. And if you're going to do it, make sure you put down everything because this is your one chance. Uh, Rick's comment about things we've seen in charts, you know, no dysdiodacokinesis, uh, All these things, were they actually checked for? We have no idea. But if you're going to take the time and effort to go back and amend, there can be no indication that that it took place at the same time. Anybody else who was involved needs to be mentioned so that you're not scrounging around for names into the future and... Be as exacting as you can with the facts of the case. But because when someone else is named in this case, they're going to have a different view of what happened that night. I promise you. But you have to remember that this is a medical record and keep it as a medical record. Don't go putting in there any uh, things about why the surgeon wasn't, wasn't available. It's, or, or, or those kinds of other issues that uh, are peripheral, keep it as a medical record. Let the lawyers find out the uh, why things went badly, but don't start pointing fingers in the medical record. That's not a, an appropriate thing to do. The medical record should be facts only. Yes, ex- exactly. And uh, you let someone else do the blaming, um, that's not where you should be. Let's do it. Let's uh, look at some uh, recent legal cases and uh, see what keeps us up at night. Non-discrimination, just uh, not discrimination, just unprofessional conduct was the decision in the United States District Court for the District of New Mexico which granted a university hospital's motion for summary judgments against a surgeon, claiming that the hospital discriminated and retaliated against him in violation of Rehabilitation Act. The surgeon, who was a part-time employee at the hospital, requested a return to full-time employment. Due to multiple instances of unprofessional conduct, the hospital had made a return to full-time contingent upon the surgeon obtaining four-part psychiatric uh, evaluation. Now, let's just review this for one second. 
when Rick and I were young in medicine, surgeons did a lot of strange things in the operating room. Uh, they threw instruments. They yelled at people. They screamed at, at residents. They, they were mad at the nursing staff. And this was considered, at least in some circles, to be just surgical behavior. Bottom line is, it ain't surgical behavior anymore. If you can't have civil behavior, you're in trouble. And this, uh, this New Mexico University hospital, I, I think there's only one of them in New Mexico, uh, had a motion that, hey, this wasn't discriminatory that they got psychiatric evaluation because they have an obligation. The hospital has an obligation to the other employees of the hospital, the nurses, the techs, the residents, everyone else. They cannot be put at psychological risk either. So basically what this says is, and the case is Rivero versus the Board of Regents of the University of New Mexico, uh, basically said, you know what? It is reasonable to expect uh, a series of things that you go through to get your full privileges back. And if part of that is a psychiatric and behavioral evaluation, so be it. And they basically said the university was correct in requiring this just because of their obligation to protect the other employees. Rick, what do you think? We had one of these uh, occurrences at our hospital, and it's uh, the medical staff can, uh, using its judgment, require that a physician go for uh, medical uh, evaluation. And frankly, this was a, a committee of the hospital that specifically dealt with this stuff, so obviously it was pretty confidential. Uh, the psychiatrist had a report back to this committee periodically on the progress that was being made by this physician who was exactly, as you say, basically a disruptive physician. You know, we were talking about emotional intelligence last month. Yes. Right? The idea that you are you have the capability to sense what's the right thing to say and 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 be appropriate in your actions and be empathetic when that's required and not be a jerk. Yeah, why don't we just call emotional intelligence? Don't be a jerk. But in right. any case, this uh, this doctor, he was a bull in the china shop and repetitively, and they basically said you have to go and get checked out to see about your behavior and see if they this behavior can be modulated. And only when you do that will we consider having you come get and uh, have privileges here. So that's a big deal because once uh, your privileges are restricted in any way, that is a uh, reportable to the uh, data bank. So you don't have to worry about uh, and 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 the and the medical board of California wants to know about any restricted privileges as well. Yeah. So, so this is within the purview of the hospital. It is to protect the patients and the staff, and it's perfectly reasonable if you've got a doctor who's acting up. 
Yep. In fact, it's not only perfectly reasonable, you better do it. Yeah, because I think that it's not going to go in your favor. By the way, on our last broadcast, we uh, Rick, you brought up something which, as I talk to more and more docs, uh, and I've had a chance to speak to a few about this, the fact that as of July 1st, 2019, uh, a new law in California, and here's a rule in life. If it happens in California today, it's going to be in Michigan in two years because every state reads what every other state is doing. And this is the law that's going to go to effect that documents in writing shelter beds for the homeless have been obtained, clothing, appropriate clothing. Now, I don't know how you define appropriate clothing in California, uh, but, you know, this is Michigan. It's cold. We do have below zero days here that you've gotten them appropriate clothes, that you've made this and that. Facilities must also provide a homeless patient with a meal. Yeah, we covered clothing, that. Are you medication. Gonna... Now... People, are, people are talking to me, Rick, saying, who's going to pay for this? I've got people in small ERs here in Michigan are saying, so am I supposed to keep a, a, a trunk full of old clothes? Um, I, I, I hope you keep us abreast of the actual cases in California because the rest of the country doesn't see this as reasonable when nobody else is stepping up to pay for it. Well, you know, I mentioned California, actually, Los Angeles County has spent over $1 billion last year to deal with the uh, homeless problem. And in fact, they just did a census. It was in the paper that the number of homeless in, in uh, Los Angeles County has increased by 15,000. So that uh, if anything is going down, they said they put 27,000 people into some kind of shelter so that there's a, just a an influx or more people are coming. They say the housing prices here are one of the reasons for that because if you, for many people, more than half of their salary goes to pay their rent. And so if you lose your job, uh, you're up the crick in terms of um, where you're going to live. And it's really very formal here. They have, par that, that, they have that, parking lots where you can live in your car. Um and yeah, this is an unfunded mandate. I guess they're going to get closed from the goodwill or something like that. And um, I don't know. It's it's going to be it's going to be a very difficult situation. And uh, I I, I want to see, and I think our listeners would like to see some actual cases where emergency departments, emergency groups. Here's the other thing: Are they going to sue the doctor? the nurse, the department, the group that's, let's say it's California emergency physicians running the emergency department. There's, Do they get sued? There is no group called California emergency physicians anymore. I understand They're that. They're called but... vit vituity, vituity. Yeah. No, this or... is this is a rule uh, on the hospital. 
this hospital's job to do this. This is like Mtala. This is a hospital rule, and so it's really not involving uh, physicians. Uh, all right, uh, let's head back here to to my home country, state of Michigan. Uh, a malpractice case came up in which one of the issues was the specialty of the doctor. This is Crego versus Edward. W. Spiro Hospital Associate Association, which, by the way, is in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, there, whether the question was whether a physician in an osteopathic uh, specialty, an osteopathic doctor, or an allopathic doctor (MD) are they permitted to analyze these cases and speak against each other? Now. For a lot of states, there are very few DOs. If you're in states like Missouri, Michigan, Maine, uh, we have schools of osteopathic medicine. We have a big one here in the state of Michigan. And basically what this said was, uh, it didn't make any difference. So MDs and, uh, and DOs can speak to and toward and against each other, assuming it doesn't have anything to do with manipulative therapy. If it has to do with a medical uh, experience, which is common to both, uh, MDs and DOs are the same, and the court Basically, what the what the uh, Court of Appeals said is the court should view those experts as exactly the same. You know, Michigan State, I believe, has an a allopathic and osteopathic uh, medical Yes, schools. they do. You are very well informed, doctor. Uh, That's is, correct. Which is really very, um, very interesting. You would think that the duplication of services at there would be really kind of like, come on guys, let's, let's pool our resources. Maybe they what? do. In fact, you know, maybe the, maybe their anatomy lab is the same for both. And, and, and the chemistry course is the same for both. Uh, but in any case, I know that that occurs and you're in California here. DOs a, a long time ago were given the opportunity to, be viewed. I, I don't even know if they were able to call themselves MDs or not. But but the, here in California, there is no difference whatsoever. And uh, speaking of DOs, I would like to acknowledge our friend's hugely successful um, career um, move, where he became the um, CEO of the American Osteopathic Association. I'm talking about Kevin Clower. Kevin was on yes. the ASEP board. It was the editor of the of ASEP Now, which is the uh, newspaper for ASEP. He's been uh, just a dynamo. He was the chief medical officer, in fact, for Team Health. He was the, he was the chief for all in hospital services, and um, he now and in fact, I talked to him a couple of days ago. He is in Chicago, acting as the CEO of the American Osteopathic Association for about the last week. And congratulations to Kevin for doing so well and getting this outstanding opportunity. Yes, kudos to Kevin on that. Uh, 
he is a guy who does need psychiatric help. You understand that. Uh, he is a dynamo. He's unbelievable. We've checked his thyroid status many times. His drug screens have been cleared, but uh, nobody produces more work or takes on more responsibility than Kevin. And he's he's been a great uh, partner, a great co-faculty member. And uh, Kevin, we all we can wish you is well in your new uh, job. But I don't think we have to wish him that because no. Kevin wouldn't know anything else. Listen, All right. Do you have any more cases there, Chief? I do. All right, because I, I, one of the things that we were sent, which we can hold off the next month uh, if you've got cases, is David Esler from Vancouver yes. uh, sent, you know, this is the time of the year when there are residents graduating. And he sent me, uh, a three-page summary of what he gives to the residents as they're walking out the door of his uh, pearls of uh, pearls of wisdom, and which yes. we can go over next time if we uh, if we have cases that are going to fill up the rest of our time. We have uh, probably fourteen minutes left, Gregory. So you got a couple of meaty ones there. Well, I've I've got one that we all ought to hear about. And that is a 14 year old, uh, committed suicide. Uh, and the, the verdict here was a $7.6 million decision. And this is in the state of Texas, which is not known as a bad state for, for physicians. And the problem was this, this was a 14-year-old uh, who had multiple problems and was given by the physician, a uh, 14-year-old uh, girl, was given Celexa uh, as an antidepressant. Now, if you're going to be a physician who gives out that kind of drug, this was given to her by her pediatrician. Uh, be very careful. Most pediatricians do not give out psychiatric medications. I know all kinds of them here in Ann Arbor who will not write for psychiatric medications. They think that it is potentially dangerous. And again, we have a case here. Uh, it's not just for pediatricians. It's for anybody who has a practice of patients who walk in, including emergency docs, urgent care. Be very careful about starting teenagers on antidepressant medications. I think that's a big decision. I don't feel comfortable with it. Um, I can't remember, Rick, I, I don't know whether you can. The last time I wrote an antipsychotic or an antidepressant from the emergency department or from the urgent care. Well, you will remember the case that we had where an emergency physician was asked to fill a prescription for a patient, a psychiatric patient, and the psychiatric patient was on very, very high doses of these antipsychotics. The uh, emergency physician was 
say, said, I don't feel comfortable prescribing at this level. I'm going to prescribe, you know, a more customary dose for you. And uh, patient said, okay, and uh, that's not what I like. This is not going to keep me even. And uh, several, several days, came, uh, 72 hours came back. Um, highly agitated and was admitted to the hospital where he successfully hung himself on the hinge of a door in uh, in a room. Yes. And, and our emergency physician was sued because he pre prescribed a medication at a level that was not uh, efficacious for this patient. He did nothing to consult a, a psychiatrist or the patient psychiatrist uh, or an on-call psychiatrist. I think still most hospitals have on-call psychiatrists. Whether they come in or not, that's another matter. But the fact is, you got to be really careful playing with these psychiatric patients in terms of uh, medications that you're not familiar with. You're kind of backed into a corner. It's it's the weekend. There's nobody else that, to fill the prescription. The guy lost his, uh, whatever it was. Um, there is there is definitely risk here associated with these drugs, and, and it's not something that we're comfortable with. So be, be careful here. Uh, um, get help. Get help. Yeah. No, that's. I, I think that's great advice. Uh, I think most emergency physicians are comfortable with maybe thirty, maybe some up to forty drugs. I don't feel right prescribing certain medications because if I don't have day-to-day -day experience with it and I don't understand all the side effects of it, I understand when I write for uh, amoxicillin. I'm pretty good on that one. I'm not bad with uh, in the department if I need to give you epinephrine or atropine. I kind of understand those drugs but to be picking, and, and I don't know how many psychiatric drugs there are these days, but uh, to think that you have command of all those drugs is, 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 a, is a fallacy. If you don't do something occasionally and are familiar and comfortable with it, don't do it at all. I think uh, calling, calling up a specialist in the area uh, and, and getting input on this is incredibly important. And, um, I'll, I'll tell you right now, every TV ad on the antidepressants talks about, uh, about uh, teenagers and it talks about potential suicide risk. So this, and I think I take... we, we should take that seriously ourselves. Uh, it's not a good thing. So I take it this uh, pediatrician gave out this uh, antidepressant and this kid committed suicide anyway, and the pediatrician was sued successfully? Was that? Yes. Yes. Uh, to the tune of several million, three and a half or yes. million dollars uh, there. Well, um, it, is a, it is a challenge because, the, you know, people are trying to do their best with what they have kind of thing. Maybe maybe a psychiatrist, maybe they lived out in a stick someplace where it wasn't very practical to send a kid to, to a psychiatrist or, you know, on any recurring basis. 
So it's not like these people didn't aren't aren't well intended, but look at you know there's big dollars here when you're dealing with the suicide business, and certainly, you know, uh, trying to assess whether somebody is genuinely suicidal or not is not there's no easy way to do that. So in, in any case, let's uh, let's wrap it up, uh, Greg. Do you have any any a quickie? Uh, I I do not have a wine of the month this month because I've been in the hospital and not sampling wines. You you know, Rick, this really is a problem. We've got to talk about the poor wine selection in American hospitals. Uh, it's it's really really bad, and for a guy like me to have to go to sleep with a mediocre Beaujolais, it's just not right. It's just not right. We don't like it. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned um, David uh, Esler's uh, list. And why don't we put this aside and for the the uh, uh, May uh, the uh, July issue, uh, why don't we go through some of these? Because I think David has put a lot of work into this, and I want to give him credit for a lot of things he said. So let's plan next month on starting out with uh, David's list and what he tells his residents. How's that? Okay, and I think it's time for a guest or two. We haven't had a guest on in a good while, and I've lined up a couple of people who have really unique um, specialties in uh, risk management, and I think that we could bring them on and uh, see what they had to say. All right, that's uh, that's it for uh, June 2019. Uh, so from Greg and Rick, goodbye, and uh, we hope that uh, both of us are feeling better by the next time we do a oh, recording listen. in July. Uh, that applies to you. I'm feeling for some reason particularly uh, well uh, mo- recently, and I'm very fortunate uh, for that. Very fortunate for that. Um, I, you know, some of you, we've been doing this long enough that we have become uh, proxy family members with you, and we ride along in your car with you, and we, we, we know how badly you drive or don't drive. We know that when you turned around and smacked one of your kids who was in the back seat, it was giving you a hard time. We know that. Um, and I kind of want to share something that has uh, been really a challenge uh, for my family uh, recently, my dear, dear, dear sister, um, who has written all of emergency medical abstracts, over 15,000 abstracts, actually closer to 20,000, has written all of our CME applications and who has been the engine behind um, a lot of emergency medical abstracts in the Center for Medical Education activities, um, came down with, uh, very suddenly, a brain tumor. Um, and this was operated on. It's not good. And um, it's really giving me an opportunity to reflect on uh, the meaning of life. And it's a shame that something like this has to be what precipitates that. But Gregory, I saw you in a vulnerable position. I see my sister suffering kind of thing. And uh, it makes it really clear 
that life is a gift and that um, we should be fully cognizant of that fact every frickin' day. Yes, I, I've been following Jerry's condition and Rick um, from my family, my wife, myself. Um, our hearts go out to you, and uh, she's been an important uh, part of of our experience all of these years. And um, I know you must be suffering. This is this is a serious problem. Uh, God bless you both. Thank you. It's so hard to stand by the frickin' sidelines and do nothing when you see this highly functioning person crippled in virtually no time. It's yeah. just terribly sad. So I want, I think, you know, I'm okay telling you folks about what's going on in my life right now. Um, because we're kind of friends. Yep. Okay. That's uh, June. Talk with you next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye.